I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, thanks so much for the welcome. Thanks so much to Tim and Joe and the leadership team for the invitation. A real privilege uh, to join with you. And I've heard such great things about this church. And often when we have people coming up to London who are leaving Oxford, this is a church that gets mentioned and people pointed to. And it's wonderful to see several people here who I've known in different contexts. Um, three sessions today. The first one, I want us to think uh, up to coffee time about being amazed by the church. We need an amazing church. And then in the second session, amazed by Jesus. And then this afternoon, amazed by his spirit. So that's where we're going to go unless the vicar comes up and says, I don't want that, I want something different. <laughs> and then we'll wing it in one of the other sessions. Anyway, I, I am thrilled to be here. And um, it's a, a privilege in my uh, role. I'm the longest serving curate in the Church of England. <laughs> God, don't trust me with a church, but I'm going to talk about church this morning. I've been at uh, St. Aldate's in Oxford for 24 years. I can hardly believe it. Um, I was a chaplain for seven years and associate vicar there, and then the last, however many is the <laughs> 17, uh, I've been the teaching pastor and assistant minister and, and had the privilege of um, being released by the church and sent out and got rid of to go and teach in other contexts. And um, wherever I've been, I've just felt God's love for the church. He just loves the church. And uh, it's been a beautiful, privileged thing. Um, prior to that, I was a curate up north in Bradford. Bradford, anyone from the north? Eee. Yeah, I, uh, I hated it. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, yeah, so I was in Bradford for three years. Uh, prior to that, I was at Theological Cemetery for years, doing degrees. And before that, I, I planted a church in a pub, and then that grew, and uh, I, I led that church. Before that, my professional life, I was a butcher. And uh, I was in the meat trade for several years, and then I became a buyer, supplying all the butchers in the West Country, and uh, loved that. Married to Tiffany, is my beautiful wife there. 34 years last weekend. I know. I know. What a gift. Anyway, here we go. If you've got a Bible, can you turn, please, to Luke chapter 13 and <clears throat> verse 6. I just want to read a few verses here. A well-known parable, and I want to just tease it open in the context of the church that we find ourselves in today. I'm not speaking so much about St. Dionysus, but the church. And the Lord Jesus says, verse 6, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Let it alone, sir, this year also, till I dig about it and put on manure. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down. 
Amen. I was uh, teaching uh, a load of priests in Ireland a week ago, and um, the bishop who introduced the conference was just coming up to retirement, and he was a dear old godly man, and uh, he began by sharing his heart, and he said that in the time that he'd been a priest, 40, 50, 40, 50 years of ministry, that he had just seen the church shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And here he was, a bishop coming to the end of his uh, ministry. And he, he said it had just, as it were, come to almost nothing under him compared to what it was when he signed up and got stuck in in the beginning. And then he said this, it moved me. He said, the tide has gone out on the church. And then he said, but I believe the tide is coming back in. And I think that as uh, we look at the church, certainly the church in the West or the church in England, perhaps the church of England, that it has seemed as if the tide has gone out. But I believe, like that dear old Bish, that the tide can come back in. Now, the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus said, hope as a rule makes a fool. Hope as a rule makes a fool. And that indeed may be so. But it all depends on the object of our hope and on the basis of our hope. And certainly our hope is not in the institution per se or in our traditions or in our track record or persons and personalities. St. Augustine said, we have a buttress for our hope. Paul says, on him, we set our hope. And God has set his hope on us. It's an extraordinary thing. Now here in this parable, the fig tree, I think, represents God's first covenant people, the apple of his eye, the people of Israel. And he comes looking for fruit. And uh, he doesn't find any. He expects to find figs on the tree because figs is what fig trees do. Except there are no figs on the tree. And she's in a sorry state. And she's failing at the one thing she exists for, which is figs. And I wonder for us this morning whether the fig tree might represent our church I'm not thinking your congregation, but I'm thinking the church per se, the church in our land. And for some years, the Lord's come looking, and there aren't that many figs. There are too few figs on the fig tree. And, uh, you know, the church has suffered in the last couple of years. It was really hit hard and hurt by covid I mean, there was a real shaking and a real revealing that happened in COVID. But what most churches realized was that many people, as it were, were just shaken away by it. And many did not come back to church. A kind of spiritual aphid attack that withered her. As I said, I've just been in Ireland. And uh, when I went there, uh, I, I did a bit of research on the statistics of the church in 
Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Ireland's always been more religious than England and Scotland and Wales, for that matter, depending on the period you're looking at. But certainly in the last few decades, and yet the church in Ireland has been whittled down, this severe attrition. And all the headlines I read, I read all sorts of newspapers, sad decline, serious decline, steady decline. Ireland is abandoning religion. I think they're 10 years behind what's been happening to us here in England. And largely, almost every denomination in England, with one or two exceptions, has suffered severe whittling and shrinking. And the outlook doesn't look good. Church of England. I'm a Church of England priest. God called me into it. She's never forgiven God for it. But there I am. I'm a, and I look at this church. We've seen a drop in attendance of 31% in two years. The average Church of England church has 29 adults and two children. One suffragan bishop told me recently that he'd been in a discussion with other senior bishops and um, they said that the task of the bishop today is to manage decline. How about that for a quote? To manage decline. I don't read that in the Great Commission, do you? <laughs> Go into all the world and manage decline. <laughs> I mean, what is that? You know, imagine all these young ministers getting ordained. Go and manage decline. I mean, come on. I mean, if you have a vision and a mission statement like that, it's going to become self-fulfilling. And you're going to find there ain't any figs on the tree. And some people don't give a fig, if I may say that. <laughs> Damien Thompson of The Spectator prophesies that the church will be extinct in the UK by 2067. I mean, he's wrong, but he's having a go. And he says, mainstream denominations led by middle managers are frightened of their own shadows. They run up the white flag long before the enemy comes down the hills. Sharp. And many ministers are just burnt out and spent. I read one report that said 42% of ministers in England would leave the ministry if they could afford it. And that is the reality. So how do we respond to the fig tree not giving many figs? Well, as I said, we worship the God of hope. And we're an Easter people. Things didn't look good on Saturday. They didn't look good on Easter Friday, did they? But we are an Easter people. We believe God can turn it around, push back the stone, and bring the dead to life. And we're a Pentecost people. And we believe that the Spirit of God can take 120 people, depending on how you do the maths and which numbers you read in the book of Acts. You can take just a handful of people in a prayer meeting and hide them behind the door freaking out. And he can set them on fire, and they can advance the kingdom of Christ that will shake the very gates of hell, that will go up against Rome, the greatest civilization and city that was anti-Christ, and by the early 4th century, it converts to Christianity. God can do it. He did it then. Throughout history, we've seen that often it's when the church is really in decline that God says, all right, I've seen what you can do, and I'm not impressed. Have a look at this. And God shows up. And we need God to do it again in our time and in our church. It ain't over till that fat angel sings. There's a brilliant Catholic apologist of an earlier generation called G.K. Chesterton 
wrote a wonderful little track called The Everlasting Man. You can get his PDF online for now. It's absolutely brilliant. But, uh, well, selectively. But there's a quote in there I really like. He says, at least five times, the faith has to all appearance gone to the dogs. Then he says, but in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. And I believe that. Just when we're, we're facing our darkest hour, as it were, the light shines. So why am I telling you? I mean, that's just descriptive of where we're at. But we are the church. You are the church. And the hope is not in your ministers or even in your church leaders. Larger. It's in you. And on you, God has set his hope to make a difference, to bring transformation, to advance the kingdom, to share the gospel, to rescue people and bring them to the Savior where you are. The pastor and theologian and cultural commentator Mark Sayers has written a good book called Reappearing Church. And he says there are two ways that we can look at the situation in the church today. He says it can be despair or opportunity. It's all about a mindset and getting the right mindset and then deciding what we're going to do about it. And he says there is reason to be wildly hopeful. Through history, he says, the periods of decline traditionally precede the most powerful outpourings of the spirit and spiritual renewal. So I think we're living in a great time. Because we've seen the church whittled away. And so we're ripe and ready for the, the church, a church heyday. We're ripe and ready for figs. And in the parable, the vine dresser says, let me tend the vine. Well, it's not a vine, it's a fig tree. But anyway, let me tend it. He says, let me dig around. Let me water it. Let me irrigate it. Let me uh, put a little trench in there so that those aphids don't come and nibble away at it. And give it another year. And then come back and have a look and see what we've got. And I feel that we're in a season of giving it another year. But we've got to dig, as it were, those trenches. We've got to irrigate. We've got to water. We've got to protect. We've got to flick away some aphids. And we've got to prepare for figs. I want to suggest just a few ways that we dig around and we get ready in order for the figs to come. And the first is to put Jesus front and center. You've got to make, Wimber said, you've got to make the main thing the main thing. And so often we haven't. But he is the main thing. I was so delighted when Will said, um, could you talk about Jesus? I mean, I'm not talking about Jesus, but I thought I'd slip it in. I'm talking about the church, but it's his church anyway. Talk about Jesus. Make him the main thing. Jesus commended the church in Ephesus for her perseverance under pressure, affliction and attrition and exigencies coming against her. And she held the line. But he says, I've got something against you. That was good, good, but you've forsaken your first love. You've forgotten me. 
You've been doing church and being faithful and holding the line and witnessing and serving and not compromising on doctrine. But what about me? He needs to be front and center. He needs to be front and center in the church and he needs to be front and center in our life because we're the church. He's got to be front and center. How much of Jesus is in church? How much of him? How, much, how many of our songs are about him? How many of our prayers are about him, to him, and seeking him? How much of our study is about him? How much of our lives looks like him? How much of our speech is about him? When we talk to other people, how much is it about him? Is your church, St. Dionysus, I'm sure it is, is it known as Jesus Church? What's the, what's the hallmark of your church? What's the hallmark of your theology? What's the hallmark of your life? It's got to be him. One of my old mates, Robin Gamble, who does his mission up north, up north, from Bradford, he told me 20 years ago, he said, I've only got three sermons. And I thought, I've heard you for years. I think you're right. You have only got three. <laughs> but he said, he said, come to Jesus, come back to Jesus, and come closer to Jesus. I mean, how about that? It's brilliant. I mean, you could do worse than that. Come to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Come up closer to Jesus. I love that. And he's been very fruitful in his ministry. Why? He's just Jesus front and center. I want to say, dear saints, in your life and dear leadership, if I may humbly say, put Jesus front and center. He's the procrustean bed. Anything that doesn't look like him, lop it off. Von Balthasar, great German, Swiss German theologian, said that, that our theology it should be like, a, well, he was talking about Karl Barth, but he said our, our theology should be like a, a sand uh, egg timer, you know, with a constriction. And he said, that constriction is Christ. And everything you're about, everything you think, oh, it's got to go through him. It's got to pass through him. The church is not a historic building preservation society. It's not social services. It's not friend society. It's the mystical body of Christ on earth. People should see him in us. I once spoke at a a clergy conference, London clergy conference, I won't tell you which diocese. And afterwards a priest asked to come and see me. And they traveled up to Oxford and we spent the day together. And they said, you know, what, what struck me from all your talking was that you talked about Jesus. They said, I talk about God, but you talk about Jesus. I thought, well, there's the problem. Anyone of any religion will talk about God, but we talk about Jesus. Our God's revealed in him. It's Jesus with whom we have to do, and it's Jesus who we've got to offer. So Jesus front and center. And you can't get others to be amazed by Jesus if you're not. So I want to encourage you, dear saints, this weekend, get, get amazed by Jesus. You know, I, I, I've been reading a book this week by Richard Vermbrand. It's a blast from the past. But um, he was part of the uh, persecuted church in Romania. He did 14 years for his faith. Amazing, godly man. 
end of the 40s through the 50s, and uh, then was able to come over to the West. But he said when he was in, when he was in jail, he said it, it often had been so beaten up and tortured. The book's called Tortured for Christ. I recommend it. He says that he couldn't even, he didn't have the words to even write, a, uh, to say a full prayer. He said the Lord's Prayer felt just too wordy. He was just spent. But he said all he could manage was, I love you, Jesus. And I'm reading now, I profoundly moved this week when I read that, I love you, Jesus. And then it goes on and says, and Jesus said to him, he said, and suddenly I was filled with fire of Jesus' love for me. That's what we need. Let's be a church where we love him and where we experience his love for us. I'm going to talk about that in the next session so you, you'll know where we're going if you want to come back. Second, we, we're digging. We're digging around. We're irrigating. We're preparing for figs. Second, we've got to prioritize prayer. Now, prayer is hard. I'm rubbish at prayer. I really am. You know, I've been a, it's probably why I'm not a vicar, I'm still a curate, get praying vicar. Um, I, uh, I can fall asleep in any position praying, you know what I mean, unless I'm walking. You know, I wake up and dribble's gone down my ear, and I think, oh, yeah, I was praying a minute ago. And in fact, I was invited to do a conference for, um, well, I won't tell you what it was, but, you know, a big national conference. They asked me to speak, and they wanted me to speak on prayer. And it was at Easter time. And in January, I wrote to them. I said, get Pete Gregg to do it. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming. They go, what? I said, I'm rubbish at this. I'll just stand up and say, I'm not very good at it. I try, but, you know, I've tried so many things. But I, it's a spiritual thing. I'm not a very spiritual bloke. And prayer. But I realize I've got to get praying more. We've got to get praying more. You know, prayer brings God into the situation, and we need more God in church. We need more God in our lives, don't we? And we've got to get praying, and we've got to find ways that work for us that we can pray, and we need to learn to pray desperate prayers. Jesus' disciples were trying to deliver some kid of demons, and they weren't getting very far. And Jesus comes, and boom, he just sets the lad free with a word. They said, why, why, why can't we do it? In the past, we've had a go, and it seemed to work. Why didn't this work? And Jesus said, this sort only come out through prayer, and some translations add fasting. What do we do when the demon's in too deep? We've got to learn to pray and fast. And the demon's in deep in our society. Darkness, that grip, that vice of the world, the flesh, and the devil throttling the life out of this nation. And our church, we've got to learn to pray. We've got to get praying, saints. You know, God spoke through the prophet Joel, and he says in Joel 2, he says, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and the altar. And, of course, we're the priesthood of all believers, so we're all included. And let them say, spare your people, Lord. Don't make your inheritance an object of scorn or ridicule and a byword among the nations so that people just mock the church. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? What we want in our society is for people to say, where is God in the church? Not where is your God? And therefore we need to be people who learn to pray. 
Thirdly, we need to put the gospel front and center. You know, if you, if you put Jesus front and center, you'll find that you'll want to put the gospel front and center because that's why he came to rescue and save and heal and deliver and because he's the good news. And in season and out, we've got to present Christ. We've got to present the gospel, whether it's trendy or not. I mean, it's rarely trendy. It offends many people. We're not to be relevant. We're to be radical. We're to go to the roots and we're to preach the gospel. The fact is we're gospel people or we are irrelevant to the world. I mean, what else have we got to offer? I mean, really, what else? That's what we do. You know, when I was a butcher, I butchered. Do you know what I mean? We had a slaughterhouse, we had animals, we cut them up, we did, and we sold them. That's what we did. Meat. Plumbers plumb. Do you know what I mean? Cooks cook. What does the church do? We're, we're about Jesus and the gospel. If we're not doing that, we're not doing our job. I mean, it would be a really worrying thing if I went to my dentist, someone put on a white coat, the guy said, right, let's have a go. I said, how long have you been a dentist? In fact, I always ask the dentist that question. <laughs> I said, how long have you been a dentist? He said, oh, I'm not. I've just got a white coat on. And I'm having a go. I said, have a go somewhere else, mate. I mean, sometimes I think the church is having a go, but she's, she doesn't know what she's doing. She's not qualified. The gospel, uh, our salvation, has often been sidelined. And we've moved on to higher things. We, or we've moved on to... We've got abstracted from the main thing. And it happens throughout Scripture. We see it with the church in Corinth. They'd come to faith through Paul preaching the gospel in fear and trembling, not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's how they came to Christ, because Christ was presented to them crucified. But then they moved on to higher things. And they got all giddy about all their special gifts. I mean... I'm into gifts. We're going to get there this afternoon. But they moved on to higher things. They left the cross. They left the gospel. They left that foundation. They got themselves in real trouble. They then welcomed all these super apostles. And before you knew it, they were in serious crisis and moral crisis. Because when you lose your foundation, when your doctrine goes, your ethics go. Look at the Colossians. Paul has to write to them and put them straight. Why? Because they've gone nuts. I mean, they're, they're after my little pony. I mean, it's all like weird things, angels and like esotericism. And, and Paul says, what, you want to have it? Get back to Christ. The Galatians, what did they do? They just went religious. We can do it in our own strength. We're all going to be circumcised. We're Gentiles, but we're going to be circumcised. We're going to follow the law. We're going to have de special days, special diets, la, la, la. And Paul says, you've forgotten it. You did, did you receive the Spirit that way, or, or was it through the cross that you got the Spirit? The church is always moving away from the main and the plain. She's, she's all the time following winds of current and being led astray from what she's about, which is the gospel. And if you drop the cross, you lose the plot. I, I got a friend... Uh, Tell him I'll see him later. And um, 
I got a friend who's a vet in Northern Ireland, and uh, he sent me a, a, an email a while ago. He said, I, I, he said, I've just got to tell you this. I just, I just got to tell you. This. And I, I, it was so unbelievable. I wrote back and said, that ain't true, is it? He said, no, it is true, it's true. Anyway, he's like a senior vet in Belfast, and he trains other vets. And he'd heard that morning from one of the vets he trained who then went off to Scotland. He said uh, that the, the, the vet told him the story. He said that someone walked into the, 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 the vets and said, with a box and said, I got these two puppies, and I'd like them to have their first jab, uh, first uh, you know, vaccine, sort of six, eight weeks and handed them over to the nurse, and she looked and smirked and walked into the vet, and the vet came out with them and said, um, tell me about these puppies. And uh, the, the guy says, well, you know, I saw them advertised uh, in the local shop, and I arranged to meet the guy at Morrison's supermarket car park, and I paid 200 quid each for them because they haven't got papers or anything like that, and..." Uh, he said, what do you think they are? He said, they're Alsatian puppies. He said, I'm really sorry. These are not Alsatian puppies. He said, oh, you're kidding. Are they mongrels? He says, no, they're guinea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> you can see why I wrote that. I went, that ain't true, mate. Come on. He said, no, that is true. <laughs> guinea pigs. <laughs> I mean, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? But it seems to me that the church sometimes... He's just offering the wrong thing. We've taken the wrong thing. We're meant to be offering the gospel, not guinea pigs. And I think we can miss it. I mean, you can't. I'm just being descriptive about other churches. This church, obviously, <laughs> nothing. It's a gospel church. But we preach the gospel. If we drop the cross, we lose the plot. And the church is always doing it. Don't do it, Dionysus. Fourthly, and you've got another 17 points. We're all right. Be, we've got to be present. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. I think we're going to get on. Um, be present to the world. In the, in the Talmud, there's a conversation with the rabbi. And the question is put, when the Messiah comes, where are we going to find him? Where's he going to be? And the rabbi says he's going to be sat in the dust with the poor bandaging his wounds. Not just bandaging theirs, but bandaging his own, because he's going to get wounded. And it's not a time to pull up the drawbridges and go all pietistic and inward-looking, but it, we've got to be in it to win it. And we've got to be present to the world. I don't find anywhere in the New Testament where mission is about inviting people to a church event. I mean, it's good. We put on events all the time, but Church is a movement, and she's meant to move. Centrifugal is an outward move, an outward direction. We're not a fortress to defend, but we're called to advance. I like what Alan Scott in his book, Scattered Servants, says. He says, it's hard to reach a city when we stay in a building, and our model of ministry is to enlarge our services. Interesting. I'm just offering this. I know you've got time for discussion later. Well, John Wimber used to put it in a way I liked it as an ex-butcher. The meat is on the street, as old Wimber would say. So we've got to find ways to, to be out there, to be the salt and to be the light and to practice hospitality and presence and friendship and service. And then fifthly, we're moving on. 
coffee's coming. We've got to prepare the next generation. We've got to prepare the next generation. Moses had Joshua, and Elijah had Elisha. Jesus had the 12, and Paul had Timothy, and St. John had Polycarp, and, and so on. I heard a jazz musician the other day on Radio 4. I may be from Bristol, but there's a bit of sophistication here. <laughs> and uh, I heard this jazz musician say that he set up a program called Each One, Teach One. I really like that. Each one, teach one. Each one, reach one, teach one. But the idea that you're you, you don't just give away your gift, you don't just exercise your ministry, but you all, all the while are looking to equip others to exercise that ministry. You know, for the last 17 years or so, I've done hundreds of conferences, and I've got to be honest, I'm bored silly with them. And I've stopped doing them, I've stopped traveling. And part of the reason was I thought, there must be someone younger. Do you know what I mean? I've got a gray beard now and a middle-aged spread. I mean, come on. I've had that since I'm about 22. But I said, come on. Where's the next generation? Where are they? They're always me and Will. Come on. Let's have some others. We, where are they? But they don't just pop up. We've got to grow them. We've got to nurture them. We've got to identify and invest in, and equip, and then release, and take risks. Some of us who are in ministry, or some of us who like our leadership, we got to give it away to the next generation. Each one, reach one. Each one, teach one. Stuart McAlpine is a chum of mine, and he told me that his dad, the famous Bible teacher, Campbell McAlpine, was very involved in, renew in the renewal days in the 60s and 70s, was ministering in New Zealand. And while he was there, um, the Spirit of God was falling on all the people who were like 18 to 25. But the old brethren God resisted it and didn't recognize and see and honor and then promote and say, more, Lord and bring this young generation up. But instead it was left to all the old brethren God. I come from that tradition. I get I, I know. I dropped out of church when I was in my young teens because I was in my young teens. I was about the only one. And everything was done by old men. Churches felt old and cold. The smell of rising damp. And mothballs in herringbone coats. And I just, where's the life? And if we want to reach the next generation. If we want to have a future for the church, it depends not on the generation who are going out, but the one coming in. So where are they? So in our thinking and praying and planning and strategizing, whilst we love and respect and honor and invest and in, in those of us who are, who are older, we are saying, come on, we need you to help us pray and pay and look for and find and release the next generation. We've got to take risks with them. In 1980, Vineyard Church, Calvary, which came out of Calvary Chapel, and uh, John Wimber on Mother's Day invited a hippie. And I mean, he was a bit weird. He was called Lonnie Frisbee. I read all that's in print and watched the films on him. A bit weird. But Wimber took a risk and brought this guy in. And this, he ministered. I've heard the tape 
of that event in 1980. And at the end, he said, if you're 14 to 25, well, what if you're 26? You know, 14 to 25, you come. They all came, and the spirit fell. Wimber had never seen anything like it. It was before he was a charismatic. And the spirit fell on these young people. Renewal, revival began with the young. They, in turn, then prayed for everyone else. And that's one church. Well, today is 2,000 churches all around the world. And in many places is advancing, 150 of the churches in England. But it began with the spirit falling on the, the next generation. And not just listening to the old Bible teacher up there. That old Bible teacher needs to say, raise up the young people. We've got to invest in the next generation. I was a university chaplain for seven years and um, had the privilege of ministering you know, with people who were far more gifted and intelligent than, like, Louis and others. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was amazing. I remember her saying to me, why don't you let some of us have a go? And I thought, well, because I'm here to teach you. And what do you know, 20-year-old? That's what I thought. But actually, I was so intimidated by her, I said, all right, okay. And, and, actually, and then, I don't know if you even remember it, but we let a group of them do some preaching. On this, and there was about three of them. Louis, one of them. Look at her wonderful ministry now. Another one of them that I remember today is hosting a conference. She asked me if I'd speak at it. I said, I'm already booked. But um, she is running this most extraordinary ministry for couples who can't have children. And there'll be over 100 of them today with the Lord drawing near. And she leads this ministry with great authority and giftedness. But I remember her as one of them. And the next generation. Otherwise, we're in trouble. But that was 18 years ago. I stopped it. Last year, I went back to running the student work at St. Aldate's. Now that I'm like a granddad. And it was, it's amazing. I don't like the levels of, of, of volume have gone up. The <laughs> volume levels, I think. Mean, this is loud and shrill. And you, you know, what is this clothing you're wearing? When I was doing it, it was Guernseys. Guernsey sweaters, corduroys, brogues, you know. And now it's like trainers and things like that. I think, what? It, it's not my culture. But I think we've got to invest in the next generation or where are we going to be in a generation? So I want to encourage you, dear ones, that be thinking and praying and planning. I'm sure you're doing all this already. I know you know all this. I'm just reminding you that we've got to look and find, identify, invest in, equip, and release that next generation. And sometimes that means that they will come with an idiom and a culture that we don't like. I don't like how you look, I don't like how you sound, I don't like how you talk, get off your flipping phone, and so on. I mean, they, they're just always on the phone when I'm speaking. It is what it is. What are you going to do? We can't squeeze them into our molds. It means we might have to relax a bit and lower some of the things that we like in order to accommodate. And then lastly, I got, have I got two minutes? Sure. Thanks, Russ. Good man. Yeah. Rabbits in the rucksack. No, you've got to get them out. Let them run. Um, six, we've got to pursue the presence of God. I'm going to talk about that in my third session. Jesus had the most high hopes in the church. 
you have real high hopes for the church. Are you, at this stage, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Nope. He says, it's not for you to know the time the Father has set by his will, but you, they're looking to Jesus. Are you going to do this? He says, no. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth. We need the power of God. We can't do the mission of God. We can't exercise the ministry of God. We can't bear fruit if we haven't got his power. We've got to dig around that fig tree. And we've got to water it. And one of the ways we dig, and, one, and that water is the presence of God. We need more, ch- more of God in his church. And choirs and spires are no substitute for a fire. They don't bring people to faith. Kierkegaard said, Christianity is incendiarism. It is fire setting. I've got a lovely old fire in my rotten old vicarage. And, um, you know, I never sit there and look at it when they're in the fire going. I never think, what a wonderful fireplace. And what a wonderful grate. And what wonderful soot. And what a wonderful place. I mean, do you know what I mean? In summer, if there's no fire, I'm looking somewhere else. But build a fire. And we're interested in the fire. You know, you don't have to advertise the fire. If there's a fire out there, everyone knows about it. And we need fire in church. We need fire in the fireplace. We're, we're called to be a Pentecost people. When the fire of God, powerful symbol of his manifest presence, like tongues rests upon everyone, and then that fire sets their tongues on fire. And filled with the spirit, they spill out onto the street and everything's different because of it. We need God's fire. Let me finish. I read a book by an old statesman in the church who was a theologian and a sociologist. He'd been a friend to two former archbishops. He told us about that. And um, he traced his religion in post-war England. And it's a bleak read. I mean, it... You know, despite the odd renewal, it's just been decline and decline and decline. And uh, that decline has accelerated in the two years since he wrote this book. Anyway, I wrote to him. He's called Clifford Hill. He's a really good egg, smart ass. And I wrote to him and I said, do you have, I said, I read your book, brilliant, but a bit upsetting. Um, Do you have any hope for the church at all? Like any. So he wrote back. I'm quoting him. I haven't got his permission. He says, strangely enough, despite all the things that are happening with this great shaking, I still have hope that the tide will turn in the not too distant future. Think of that bishop. The tide's gone out, but it's coming back. It's what tides do. I still have hope the tide will turn in the not-too-distant future. And then he gives some evidence. My daughter-in-law was priested last Saturday. My son is the director of mission for the diocese. And my grandson was ordained a deacon on Monday this week. Tide's coming back. The next generation 
God is still saving. He's still healing. He's still delivering. He's still drawing people to himself. He's still pouring out his spirit on them. He's still equipping them and calling them and releasing them into ministry. And that's the hope for the church. We put our hope in God and God has put his hope on us. We just need to make sure we're digging round and Jesus is front and center and we're praying and we're preaching the gospel and I've forgotten all my other points. But you, I could see that you were all taking notes. So we're going to go for coffee. God bless you. We can talk about that in our groups later on.